0: Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm John Bailey. On Profiles, we talk with notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Penelope Spheris, a film director, writer, and producer, who gave us the documentary trilogy, The Decline of Western Civilization, and a number of major studio feature films as well, including Wayne's World and Black Sheep. Much of her best-known work depicts young people whose lives are in some way extreme. Penelope Spiris, thank you for being here today.
1: Oh, thank you very much for having me, John.
0: I'd like to talk first about the Decline films, which you have said uh, constitute maybe the better part of your legacy. Okay. You had been going to the clubs in the late 70s where punk music was being performed in L.A. Was there an aha moment for you when you realized i have to document this on film
1: Mm, good question yes i was indeed a part of the punk rock scene in the mid to late 70s people always ask well how did you ever get in there and become so familiar with people well the fact of the matter is i was already familiar with them when i thought of doing the film and with regard to the aha moment I think it was probably when I saw the germs perform at the Starwood not sure exactly of the year but I realized that um it was a very unique um movement in so many different ways and that somebody needed to document it and I just felt inspired
0: what did you expect would come of the film
1: I didn't really have any expectations back then I mean I was uh, I had my own um, video company back then. I just I come out of school and started a, a music video production company called Rock and Reel, and I was making a meager living working for the um, record companies, just doing performance-type videos, and um, I mean, I knew it was important to document it because nobody else was doing it, but it's not like I knew that 30 years later that people would be so interested in it.
0: You've said you feel prouder of these films than maybe anything else you've done, why is that so?
1: I do feel prouder of the Decline series than any of my other work. Um, well, I guess I could include Suburbia with that as well, though. Um, because I feel for me that they did what I really wanted to do in life, which was to study human behavior. And, you know, music is also a great interest, but it was the music aspect was more an excuse or a platform to document the human behavior of young people at the time. You know, somebody referred to it as the documentation of alternative music in in, in the last couple decades of the 20th century. And I thought, well, that's a fine compliment, you know, because not everybody had a camera back then, and we don't really have a lot of documentation of that particular type of music back then. We have a lot of, of documentation of of disco and the kind of fade out of that um, hippie rock. But we didn't have a lot of documentation of punk rock and the street metal of the day.
0: Disco lent itself to films about the trend, Uh starting with Saturday Night Fever and on through to Can't Stop the Music. And punk did not lend itself to that. No, not at all. The atmosphere in the clubs was very chaotic. Mm -hmm. How safe did you feel? inside those clubs as a visitor and as a filmmaker?
1: Well, I kind of knew the rules of the room, you know, having been to many, many concerts um, before I started shooting, I knew what you could do and what you couldn't do. And I always took great care to do the right things. You know, I mean, the pit got pretty reckless and crazy sometimes, but I always shot one camera on the decline movies. And I put myself on a platform with a tripod. So if anybody knocked the platform around, we nailed the tripod pod down so it wouldn't fall over. So I was relatively safe there. And then I put the poor cameraman with the handheld camera down in the pit. And he would say, like the first time Steve Conant was shooting, he said, you're going to have to get me a shark cage because I can't do this otherwise. He said, my camera's bouncing all over the place and I'm not getting anything. And I said, no, Steve, you're getting a lot. And that's the way it should look. It should look crazy and reckless and insane because that's what the scene was like. So I didn't feel unsafe, you know. I had a tall boyfriend at the time who (laughs) seemed to care about me. (laughs) So he he was always watching my back.
0: (laughs) A lot of the characters whom we follow, not just in the first decline film but through the series, seem to be out of control in their lives or on the brink. How comfortable are you with that level of chaos?
1: Well, there, is a, there was a great level of chaos, and I think one reason I was very attracted to it is because I was raised in chaos, you know? It, to me, it felt like home. I'm the um, oldest of four children. My father was murdered when I was seven, and so I was put in charge of taking care of the children. And my mother had... After my dad died, she had seven different husbands, so I had seven stepdads, and um, it was really chaotic. Often there were, you know, physical fights and blood and people going to the hospital with excuses of why it happened and stuff like that. So I wasn't afraid of the punk rock scene. I wasn't afraid to get in there because, to me, that was just daily life, you know?
0: You were born in New Orleans, but your father owned a carnival? Mm Mm-hmm. And traveled frequently with the family every week, where was home for you
1: on the carnival? yeah, that was the carnival in the winter. you know we would go and they called it winter quarters, and they would go and down to Pensacola or some place like that that was warm and just kind of camp out while it was really cold. Most of the time it was the carnivals in the midwest and the south, but whenever I was in school i would I would have to go to a different school every week, more chaos. <laughs>
0: Do you have a lot of clear memories of those first years?
1: Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. definitely. I have a lot of clear memories of the carnival.
0: And after your father died, your mother remarried?
1: Yeah, my mom remarried quite a few times after my dad passed away. She was actually kind of a very, very moral kind of person, you know, really um, not hugely religious, but she comes from coal miners in, in Kansas and Arkansas. That's where the families are from. And... They're just really solid, sturdy people with good standards, you know. So she wouldn't want to ever, you know, have a boyfriend and not get married. Let's put it that way. So she kept getting married over and over again.
0: What was constant for you growing up?
1: Chaos. <laughs> Chaos is constant. So that's why, like, you know, as you were saying, it wasn't daunting for me to do these movies because that was just what I knew. And... You know, having seven stepfathers, I got used to being treated badly by men, so I did pretty well in the film business because it didn't bother me, (laughs) you know.
0: That actually brings me to the second decline film, which focuses (laughs) on…
1: Good transition.
0: 80s heavy metal, um, many of the bands L.A.-based, some of them sober and in recovery, some of them not quite there. Mm Mm-hmm many in hedonistic periods of their lives mm-hmm. i'd actually like to play right now a fairly famous clip of chris holmes the guitarist for wasp uh, he's floating in a lawn chair in a pool his mother is seated poolside looking on kind of with amusement, pouring vodka in his mouth and all over his face and talking about his alcoholism
1: chris do you yes, drink very so much Pardon? Do you drink very much? Uh, yes, I do. I'm a full-blown alcoholic. Just when he's awake? I, I drink too much. Here. Okay, why do you drink that much? Because uh, I enjoy it. Do you think a Rock and Roll lifestyle turns you into an alcoholic? Yes, it does. How much of that do you drink a day? About five pints. A vodka? Yeah. Five quarts, pints, who cares? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a happy camper. <laughs> do you think that maybe uh, this kind of, you know, rock and roll lifestyle is, is hard on you and maybe that's why you drink? Well, I'm a full-blown alcoholic. And uh, why I drink is because, what what? Why? Well, why do you drink, Chris? Ah, uh, because it makes me happy. happy. Uh, I enjoy drinking, and I just enjoy life.
0: How compelled did you feel to, at times, take off your documentarian hat and intervene in the lives of these people who seem to be spiraling?
1: Well, I don't think I ever really felt compelled to intervene, and I, I don't feel guilty about that. I mean, when you look at the various players in these films you'll see you can't tell who's going to live and die. You know, by that time in my life, I had lost a lot of friends to drug and alcohol. I could never tell who was going to go. I mean, Keith Richards is still alive. Chris Holmes is still alive. I'm still alive, (laughs) barely. And, um, you know, I always say God's in charge of life and death. We can't go, oh, that guy's going to die for sure. Yeah, sometimes it's pretty obvious, but you can't really say. So I never felt that it was my business to intervene, and I don't feel guilty about that. There were kids in decline three who passed away that I never thought would, ever. It's just so unpredictable.
0: That Chris Holmes clip has been, I wouldn't say it's gone viral on the web, but it's been seen many times outside the context of decline two. People just hearing about it, searching it out on YouTube, watching it, maybe kind of getting a laugh at how outrageous it is. Mm-hmm. How funny was the film to you at the time?
1: It wasn't as funny to me, and we're not talking specifically about Chris Holmes. I'm assuming you're talking about the entire film. It wasn't as funny to me as it was to the producers. Um, the producers were John uh, Dayton and Valerie Ferris, who went on to direct Little Miss Sunshine. They're really, really great people. They really have a great take on life. They really have a fantastic sense of humor, I was more interested in the more serious side of of music as you could tell from the first decline so i would always try to pick the more serious bands that's why i struggled to get megadeth to end the movie and i won so that's good it was going to be guns and roses but that didn't work out i love the other bands they're just lighter and fluffier i didn't think of it as funny i thought of it as that that's just the way these people are right now in 1987 these people are walking around up on Sunset Strip acting like this, and I am going to shoot it. I'm going to film it because people need to see
0: this. The cast of characters in the second Decline film was quite different than the musicians in the first. You had some who had really broken out and had enjoyed major mainstream success. In Decline 2? Yeah. Aerosmith.
1: Yeah, but they were performing. Right. The concept for the Decline movies is that we can use whoever we want to to speak with, but it's to to give unknown bands a platform and some exposure. I get gratification out of that. So the bands I pick for the movies are unknown, the ones that perform.
0: Is that the common thread through mm-hmm. the three films? Yes. In mm-hmm. the third film you focus heavily on teenagers in mm-hmm. the 90s punk culture who are trying to survive.
1: Right. Out on the street homeless.
0: But the, the common thread is... Is unknown, the unknown bands
1: because all those bands were relatively unknown at the time i don't think any of them have gone on to achieve gigantic stardom but as keith morris says in decline three that's not really what he wanted anyway so it's not a gratifying thing so they're smart enough to know that i think they're just are doing their thing mm-hmm.
0: the people you follow through the films tend heavily to be male and in truth are not universally respectful of, of women. And in fact, during the second film, I recall you saying that uh, your daughter was on the set. Teenage daughter uh, was nearby and ended up dating a member of Motley Crue. When you were making those films, how abrasive was that to you?
1: It didn't bother me, you know, really, John, because I didn't focus on it. I didn't go, oh... I'm being treated badly because I'm a woman. I never said that, you know? And I actually use that phrase with regard mostly to the mainstream motion picture industry that I've dealt with. That's where I felt more like I was treated badly as a woman than with any rock and roll or decline shooting that I've done, you know? But I never focused on it either with the mainstream studio movies because, I don't know, if you focus on something really, really hard, then that's what you get. In retrospect, though, I do think I was treated badly, you know, because I'm a woman uh, by, by mainstream Hollywood. And I know so many other women who were and are. But as far as the rock and roll films that I've done, I didn't ever think that. But I know what you're saying. That the women, in, especially in part two, are treated very, very badly, and spoke of in very badly. The fleas and ticks of rock and roll. The girls kind of thought that was cute, and they bought into it, and they did that. And groupies loved being groupies. And yes, my daughter dated Nikki Six, and I could have killed him. <laughs> but it was like my rock and roll karma, you know? It's like, oh, Penelope, you want to live a life of rock and roll? Here's what you get. I get to have my daughter going out with Nikki Six. You know, great, thing. She's
0: 17, and he's going around telling people she's 15.
1: Yeah, you know, just so he could be cooler. But you know the great thing? Life is so wonderful in so many ways. I think he's a father of two or three daughters now, so he's going to have to deal with what I dealt with. You know what I mean? It's okay.
0: Three or four years before Decline 2, you were offered the opportunity to direct This Is Spinal Tap and you turned it down.
1: Well, let's just say this. I was talking with um, Harry Shearer and Chris Guest and this guy named David Javelin, and they were telling me their idea, and they gave me a few pieces of paper. It wasn't a script, and they said, this is the concept for you know, this movie that's gonna totally make fun of heavy metal. I read it and I thought, you know, I don't think I'm gonna be good at that. I don't think that I could make fun of it. But ironically, I kind of did in Decline 2 inadvertently. So I think Rob Reiner did an awesome job on that. You know, I don't regret that I didn't do it.
0: Did you enjoy This Is Spinal Tap when you saw it?
1: Oh, yeah, I loved it. I love Fred Drescher. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic.
0: Is it fair to say that between Decline 2 and Wayne's World, you sort of ended up making a This Is Spinal Tap of your own in some ways?
1: I think The Decline 2 and Spinal Tap and Wayne's World all stand on their own. You know, they have similarities, but, I mean, I got the job to do Wayne's World because I had done Decline 2 and also because I knew Lorne from years and years ago. Lorne Michaels. Yeah, Lorne Michaels. He had asked me to teach Albert Brooks how to make movies because he didn't know how. I'm like, well, I know how to make movies. Can I just do some, some shorts on the show? And he's like, no, no, no. We have to have a man for that. (laughs) <laughs> no, he didn't say that, but that's what it was. But I, I taught Albert how to, how to shoot, and I produced with Albert.
0: How did you meet Lauren Michaels?
1: See, it's so interesting in life how things happen without me trying. I was at UCLA, and there was a notice on the board that said, need translator for a Jimi Hendrix movie. Not translator, I should say transcription person. So I was extremely fast typist so i thought i could do this job so i called up this guy gary weiss and gary said he and his friend john head were working on a movie about Jimi hendrix and that's what it's called Jimi hendrix it was right about when jimmy just died i think it was around 74 maybe 73. i did the transcription they were really pleased i became really good friends with those guys and lauren knew john john knew lauren let's put it that way lauren michaels and lauren had just come from um, Toronto to visit California and I actually remember Lauren sitting in my living room reading the morning paper and I was making him an omelet which he always says gives me credit for doing very well (laughs) and he was reading the, the morning paper and he goes you know I'm just thinking about maybe doing some kind of a live show you know Saturday night and from New York or something and that was I'm not saying he thought of it in that room but yeah I knew him before he did the show
0: and he invited you out to New York to work on the program?
1: Yeah, he did, actually. Lauren's a good dude. He, he asked me to go to New York, and my daughter was only uh, three at the time, I think. And um, he asked me to go to New York, and I said, no, Lauren, I'm going to stay out here. And he goes, well, you stay out here, and then if I need anything done out here, I'll let you know. And I said, fine. And then uh, he said, I found this really funny guy, Albert Brooks, so he needs to make some shorts for the show. So can you produce them? And I did.
0: What did Albert Brooks learn from you?
1: How to make movies. <laughs> I taught Albert Brooks how to make movies. There you go.
0: What did you learn from him?
1: Oh, good question because it was a total even trade. I knew nothing about Hollywood, and Albert knew a lot because, you know, he was a Beverly Hills kid that knew all the stars and the actors of the time, and he was just raised in that milieu and I was raised in a trailer park, you know? <laughs> and he taught me how to navigate Hollywood, and I taught him how to technically make films. I didn't teach him how to be funny, mind you. He knew that. Albert's a genius comedian, and I don't mean to be taking too much credit, but he had not gone to film school, and, and I think I helped him out quite a bit, and he helped me, so even, even trade.
0: And you ended up as a producer on his first feature film, mm-hmm. real life?
1: Yes. Um, I, I produced um, well all the shorts on Saturday Night Live, and he got some money together, and then buddied up with uh, Paramount, and um, we did real life. He directed, I produced. But uh, that's when I decided I didn't want to be a producer anymore.
0: Was that your first major feature film experience?
1: No, my first fe- a major feature film experience was when I was in a Roger Corman movie, as an actor, I was Shirley Animal's girlfriend in uh, this biker group. Actually, before that, I was the star of a movie at UCLA. This director back then made this awesome independent movie, and I was the star. And unfortunately, he got killed in a motorcycle accident right when the film was done. Alan Jacobson was his name. His parents put that film on a shelf and never let anybody see it. So I I thought that was a signal from God that I was not an actor, Hmm. yeah.
0: You were involved with another significant shelved film in the late 60s, uh, Uncle Tom's-
1: Fairy Tales. Fairy
0: Tales, Mm -hmm. um, the movie for homosexuals.
1: What does that mean? I've never heard that before
0: that's that's the uh that's what appeared after the colon in my research but that's not the title
1: no that's just some internet glitch i have no idea what that means but it was originally called uncle tom's fairy tales what happened was when i was in film school um my daughter's father bobby scheller and i were walking across the street by milnitz hall which is the film school uh, building and bobby goes wow That's Richard Pryor walking in front of us. He was wearing, like, a long brown leather coat and big hat. And I'm like, who's Richard Pryor? And he goes, the funniest man on the planet. So we stopped and talked to him, and we asked him what he was doing there, and he said he was looking for some film students to help him make a movie. And I went, well, you found them. And so I produced a movie that that Richard directed and wrote. It was called Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales. About halfway through it, when we shot it, um, I was the producer, and I put everything together. Bobby shot camera sometimes. He recorded sound sometimes. Um, it was all kind of just you know guerrilla filmmaking. We got all the film together. I kind of worked every day in Richard's house with him to edit the film. So I spent a good solid two years with Richard Pryor, and I, had a, I got a good comedy education from both him and from Albert Brooks.
0: Richard's career was evolving right then yeah. as a stand-up. Right. It's like he had been a fairly mainstream comedian, and then he decided to, to make a change.
1: I didn't really know who he was. I remember one time, we were sitting there editing, and there was a knock at the door, and Shelley, his wife, comes in and goes, Richard, it's the IRS. And uh, Richard said, you go talk to him. I said, I go talk to him? He goes, yeah, you go talk to him. Tell him I'm not here. So I went to the door. And uh, the guy goes, is Richard Pryor here? And I said, well, no, not right now. Can I tell him that you were here? And the guy identifies himself as the IRS. And then behind him, Richard comes up with some hedge shears and starts clipping the hedges. And acting like he's the gardener. (laughs) And and I'm doing everything I can not to laugh, you know. And he's going, hello, nice to see you. Yeah, uh uh-huh. And he's just doing this, and the guy walks away. (laughs) It was funny. And I remember, like, it was summertime for for a lot of the time we were cutting, and I would sit there in in shorts at at a movieola. Richard would sit on my left side over here. He'd have a plate of Coke in one hand and a bottle of Courvoisier in the other hand. I remember one day he looked down at my legs and he goes, because I'm pretty light-skinned, he goes, you know, your legs it, it look like chicken skin. <laughs> I swear to God, to this day, and I look down, I always go, yeah, it looks like chicken skin, all right. <laughs> Thanks, Richard.
0: Was the film finished?
1: The film was finished to a degree. Uh, He wanted to show it to Bill Cosby. He said he wanted to sell it to Bill Cosby because he needed some money. So we went to UCLA screening room. And uh, it was back in the day when the film and the the audio were separate. Threw the reels up on the dummies, they call them, the playback machines back there. And um, Bill Cosby came in. He was very sort of standoffish, not that friendly. And um, sat down and watched the movie. I never knew what happened after that, except for the fact that the film was gone.
0: It was never screened in its entirety publicly? You know, publicly?
1: Jennifer Pryor has some tickets that announces a screening of it, but I don't know if they're legitimate or where it was screened or if it was screened. But, yeah, there was a time when I went back to Richard, and because he had owed me, like, three months' pay for working. He just said, I don't have the money. Bye. So that was that. Mm.
0: What, what became of the film?
1: I don't know. I think if Bill Cosby searched his vault, he might find it. But I think he's a little too busy right now. And I think one reason why it might have been put away, shall we say, is that Cosby was on top of the world at that point, And Richard was his biggest competition. And it makes sense to me that it might have gone away because of that.
0: I'd like to move on and, and discuss Wayne's World. It okay. was the first major studio picture with which you were involved as a director. Mm-hmm. How different was that experience from, say, the Decline films as a director? What kind of education was it for you?
1: Well, I had done, you know, the first Decline in 79 and 80, I shot it. I did um, Suburbia after that and The Boys Next Door and Dude. Waynesville was my seventh movie, but you're right in that it was my first studio movie. And the experience was quite different. When, you know, I had done my low budget independent movies that I just mentioned, I generally had one person to answer to. For two of them, it was this very entertaining, uh, crazy dude named Sandy Howard. And then, of course, there was Roger Corman, you know, for Suburbia. But with a studio picture, you have, like, six people to answer to. And Who are those people? I had to answer to Lorne Michaels. and um,
0: He was the executive producer?
1: The producer. Karen Rosenfeld was the executive producer, I think. She's actually a studio exec as well, so maybe she wasn't. Karen Rosenfeld, uh, John Goldwyn. Um, then I had to an answer to Bonnie and Terry Turner, who were the writers, brilliant writers, because that's the way TV works. TV works in that the writer is in charge or at least with the live TV show like Lauren's doing, you know. uh, The director is just the person that puts the people in the right place and gets the camera in the right place in TV. So I had to kind of make an adjustment because the director, per the director's guild, is the person who's in charge of all creative decisions. It was uh, an adjustment for me to deal with so many different people's input. And, of course, there was Mike's input and Dana's as well, and Rob Lowe's.
0: (laughs) Wayne's World was a surprise hit. Mm Mm-hmm. Caught you by surprise?
1: Oh, yes, definitely. I don't think any of us that were working on the show knew that it was going to do as well as it did. I don't think anybody at the studio, Paramount, knew that it was going to do that well. It wasn't me, you know. It was just a magical combination of a bunch of different chemistries, you know. I mean, perfectly placed, you know. It's like John Lennon isn't the Beatles. When the right people get together to do the right thing, Something magical happens. That happened with Wayne's World.
0: And after Wayne's World, you found yourself doing a series of studio pictures.
1: I didn't really want to do the studio pictures. I I should say, I did want to do studio pictures. I didn't want to do comedies. I had inadvertently been very well trained in comedy after watching, you know, comedy movies growing up as a kid and then having dealt with extensively with uh, Richard Pryor and Albert Brooks. And then again, uh, Lorne introduced me to Lily Tomlin. So I had some comedy chops. But had I had my choice in in my career, I would have gone on to do other films like Suburbia and films that were more personal to me and things that had a a more serious message. But I couldn't do that. See, that's that's the woman in the industry part that gets me, because I think men uh, have more leeway in that once they have a hit with something, they can do some other genre, but not not us chicks here because it's like you did a comedy, it really did well, we're not going to take a chance. I mean, I went to Paramount right after I did Wayne's World because they were going to do a great script called Leap of Faith, which Steve Martin starred in. And I sat down with John Goldwyn and I said, please, John, please let me do this movie. I can do such a fantastic job with it. I was raised on a carnival. I know what a traveling circus is like because this was a traveling evangelist. Didn't get the job. And I thought, how could I make them $185 million and then they won't give me a job?
0: What would it take?
1: It would take Paramount having to exercise an option on Chris Farley because he had done Tommy Boy and he wanted to go to a different studio and do Cable Guy. And if they didn't exercise the option by Monday morning at 9 o'clock, they lost Chris Farley. So they called me up on Sunday and they said, Penelope, will you do Black Sheep? Actually, they didn't even have a title. They go, well, you do a film with Chris Farley. I said, I love Chris Farley, but what's the movie? Show me the script. We don't have a script, but it's going to be good. And I go, well, I love Chris, but I need to see a script before I can commit. Mm, we don't have a script. But it's Lorne, so.
0: So that was your own leap of faith there. You signed on to the Lorne Michaels Chris Farley project.
1: I didn't know what to say, and I just was silent. Sherry Lansing and John Goldwyn were both on the phone, and I was totally silent. And she said, how about $2 million as a salary? And then I was really silent because that's a hard decision. I'm going to do a movie that I don't know what it is, but look at all that money. And I was so just quiet. And John goes, okay, (laughs) (laughs) 2.75. So I didn't want to do those kind of movies, but they kept offering me all this money. And I thought, well, if I can't do the movies I want to do, I might as well make the money. And so that's what I did.
0: You ended up doing Beverly Hillbillies, Little Rascals. Mm -hmm. You began directing more than 40 years ago. Rub it in. (laughs) (laughs) What has changed for you as a female director during that time?
1: I think as a female director, what's changed is the fact that I've realized my gender was a factor in what happened in my career. But the other thing that's, that's really cool is I think I've evolved to the point that I'm not defining myself by filmmaking. I'm defining myself by something deeper. I'm really proud of that. I have so many contemporaries now who are still banging their head against the wall, trying to get movies made the same way that they used to be made. You can't do that anymore. And I want to tell them, stop doing that. Just stop trying to do it the old way. It doesn't work. I mean, I just feel it's more important to evolve as a human being than it is a filmmaker.
0: You've been a mother for 46 years?
1: 45, give 45? me a break, dude.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Everything you accomplished in the first couple of decades of your film career, you did as a single mother. Yes. How did that factor affect your career choices?
1: Well, people say to me, why do you have such a varied uh, scope of work? Why, why are all the films so different? Because I took every job I could, you know, every job I could get, I would take it because I just needed to pay the rent and get some money for my daughter to eat and put clothes on and go to school. And I brought her with me everywhere because I had to, you know, I mean, I even locked her in an editing room one night and forgot her. And when I left at six in the morning, I'm like, oh, my God, my kid's locked in the building. And I had to call the fire department to get my daughter out five years old. Here's the cool thing. Anna is the one that got the decline movies out. I wouldn't be sitting here if she hadn't done that. She's the one that said, Mom, you really have to do this. People really, really want to see them. As a result of that, it's sort of been a, a reinterest in my career. And I never expected this at this age, that people would care. You know, I was kind of signed off. OK, bye, y'all. <laughs> you know, but my daughter got the box sets out. So I have to be thankful for that.
0: What's next for you? What would you like to work on?
1: You mean movie-wise?
0: Yeah. Or
1: or otherwise. I love building houses. Yes, I've built quite a few. I've got one now I need to work on. I love that. It's very creative. I would do a documentary about the mental health system in the United States if I could. But because of privacy issues, it's so difficult.
0: You've mentioned that you're uh, close to someone who has been hospitalized uh-huh. recently.
1: Well... When I did Decline 3, I met my boyfriend. He was uh, homeless for 10 years before that. So I went from being homeless to living in a multimillion-dollar house and having a lifestyle that was totally the opposite of homeless. He's uh, bipolar and schizophrenic and the smartest person I've ever known. He um, went off his meds when his dad passed away a couple years ago, and he's been incarcerated ever since. High-security mental hospital. So I got to know without trying the process of the health system, especially down in Florida. That's where he's at. But you can't get him out. I can't get him out. So anyway, I, I, I feel compelled to do films sometimes when I have a cause like this because you can't do a, a good documentary unless you feel that kind of passion about it. Mm-hmm. You know, That's the kind of passion I felt with the decline movies, and I think that's what makes a good movie. And uh, what else? Uh, we're working on Decline 4 just because people really, really want it.
0: Can you talk about the topic of decline for?
1: I can't because my daughter would kill me. Here's the problem. Everybody's got a camera these days. And so therefore, if I tell people what the subject is, anybody can go out and shoot that. So I have to kind of keep it under wraps and I hope you understand. But there is a decline for it in the works. And plus my daughter, Anna Fox, is working on a movie about the carnival that I was uh, born on. And I think it's gonna be a great movie. I'm the producer. She's the director.
0: I've been speaking today with Penelope Spheres, film director, writer, producer. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. I love Indiana. (laughs) This is an amazing place.
0: This is John Bailey for Profiles.